Today on The Dirt Show, we jump feet first into sensitive issues regarding race and gender. We're going to talk about an event that happened in Smith College where a black woman was told to leave a dormitory area. She cried racism. It turned out she was the one who was wrong, and the people who told her to leave was 100% right. And then we're also going to talk about what it means that of 43 investigations of shooting of black people uh, in the New York area, none of them has been successfully convicted. You'll hear about this issue and other issues regarding race on today's Dirt Show. Today we're going to talk about a subject that's very difficult to talk about. Race, racial discrimination, identity politics. But it's very, very important to have honest discussions about race. And there are two issues that arose in yesterday and the day before's New York Times that bring the issue of race and identity politics to the forefront. One was a very disturbing article entitled Inside a Battle Over Race, Class, and Power at Smith College. And it tells a story, uh, a story that one can imagine a film being made of. Um, it tells the story of a young black woman uh, having lunch uh, in an isolated area of a dormitory, and she's approached by a janitor and a campus unarmed police officer and simply asks what she's doing in that part of the dormitory because it was not supposed to be a place where people were having lunch. Um, that should have been the end of it. Uh, she left and went to a different part of the dormitory, and then she tweeted that she was profiled, quote, all I did was be black. It's outrageous that some people question me being at Smith College and my existence overall as a woman of color. So this hit the Internet and became viral, and the president of the college, of course, immediately accepted her version of events and said, quote, this painful incident reminds us of the ongoing legacy of racism and bias in which people of color are targeted while simply going about the business in their ordinary lives. The American Civil Liberties Union took her case and said that she was profiled for eating while black. The school then put the janitor on leave, and the young woman called the janitor and another cafeteria worker a racist. There were protests. You can just imagine. Um, the demand was made for separate black dormitories by the American Civil Liberties Union, and um, other consequences followed. People were required to take all kinds of uh, sessions on, on, on how to deal with racial uh, issues, etc. But then the university did a smart thing. They hired a law firm that specialized in investigating charges of racism. And the law firm did a very extensive investigation and found out that the, all the entire fault was on the part of the young black woman, that uh, what she did was wrong and what all the other people did was right. It was as simple as that. Uh, she had been told that she couldn't go to that part of the dorm. It was reserved for young kids who were in a kind of summer program. And because the kids were so young and vulnerable, the security officials were told to be careful, make sure that there aren't any adults who are improperly around because they're a vulnerable 
uh, kids there. And so when she started to walk toward that area where she was not allowed to be in, where she was trespassing, she was very, very gently told that she shouldn't go there. But she went there anyway. And by the way, a lot of these conversations she then recorded, which turned out to hurt her case very much. So the cafeteria worker did what she was supposed to do. She called campus security and said there's an unauthorized person in the area where young children are supposed to be. He doesn't belong there. Uh, the person who made the call couldn't tell because she was bundled up and she was lying down uh, and couldn't tell whether it was a man or a woman. Didn't report, by the way, that it was a black person. No, no such report appears on the transcript. Um, of course, she then complained that she was, quote, misgendered, deliberately misgendered by the reporting officer. And they came, and the conversation again is recorded. Everything was polite. The police officer wasn't armed. A simple explanation was given, and that should have been the end of the matter. But the young woman went on a rant and started attacking the janitor, started attacking everybody as being a racist. And uh, the university basically supported her, notwithstanding the fact that the investigation proved that it was she who was completely at fault. She was trespassing. She had acted inappropriately. She erroneously called uh, these people uh, racists. And the people she called racists were, you know, young, poor old people who worked for a living in the context of a very wealthy university. These were the people who represented the working class in a university where tuition is, I think, $78,000 a year. And uh, But when race uh, is juxtaposed against class, at Ivy League universities or places like Smith, you know what's going to prevail. Race is going to prevail over class. And that's what that's what happened here. Um, the issue was, um, should have come to an end, but it didn't. Uh, and the university has not issued a public apology um, to the uh, janitor who was fired, uh, to other people who were mistreated to people who were called racist. As far as I know, the woman who behaved absolutely properly and the man who behaved absolutely properly and were called racist online and people came to their homes and attacked them for being racist. They were not able to get jobs afterward because they were labeled racist. As far as I know, they haven't sued the young woman. Uh, I think she would be open to a lawsuit. She called them racists after knowing that there was no racism at all involved in this. But, you know, you can throw around the, the phrase racist uh, all you want. It's really today become like crying wolf. Uh, the difference is people still believe it. If you accuse somebody of, of racism and you are black and the person you accuse is white, even though if you're rich and the person who you accuse is poor, it's going to resonate. Identity politics means if you're black, you're right. If you're white, you're wrong. Um, and uh, it shows itself in this case so, so clearly. And, and the problem, of course, is that there is real racial discrimination. People really are profiled for eating or driving or walking while black. But when you get people like this woman making a false accusation. And I understand the initial concern. She's asked what she's doing there. She's black. She's a woman. 
I can easily imagine her initial instinct being, hey, they must have picked on me because I'm black and a woman, even though they didn't know she was a woman. And there's no indication that anybody thought her race or her color had anything to do with why she was called. Uh, obviously, if a white man had been lying there inappropriately in the wrong place with young children about to come in, the same procedures would have been followed. There was nothing racial about it. So I don't blame her for her initial reaction. Where I falter, where I think she's morally culpable and perhaps legally culpable, is that she continued to accuse innocent people of racism even after it was as clear as could be, after the university conducted an investigation, after she had a lawyer. The other people didn't have lawyers. They couldn't afford it. But she had a lawyer, the ACLU, who doesn't any longer represent people who are denied free speech on campus but are perfectly prepared to take cases like this and call for segregated dormitories on the campus. What has happened to the ACLU? That's a whole other show that we can get into and probably will at some point. But the ACLU takes the lead. She throws around the term racist. And, and the end result is going to be that people are going to take real racism allegations a little less seriously. This woman did no good for uh, African-American people, for people of color. She hurt their cause terribly. She should not be treated as a hero. She should be treated as a naive, young, identity politics woman who was prepared to lie and prepared to falsely accuse uh, people of racism when she knew that racism wasn't involved. And... Um, it's an issue worth discussing, and she's an adult. She's in her 20s, and she should be treated as an adult, and she should be held accountable for her uh, conduct. This relates to another story that appeared in uh, today's New York uh, Times, and it's a story that says that of the 43 cases investigated and prosecuted by a special New York team of prosecutors that are assigned to cases involving uh, police officers shooting African-American people, mostly unarmed African-American people, that of the 43 cases investigated and prosecuted, there hasn't been a single, not a single conviction. And the New York Times presents that as a story of the failure of the system, of bias in the system. But it's, it's much more complex than that, it may show a very different phenomenon at work. It may show that as the result of legitimate concerns growing out of these cases of police shooting and Black Lives Matter um, uh, advocacy, that many, many more cases are now being prosecuted and investigated than ever before. And when you get many, many, many more cases being investigated and prosecuted, you're going to include within the many, many more that are being investigated and prosecuted, many, many more innocent cases. And so the more cases you investigate and prosecute that include people who are innocent, the lower the rate of convictions are going to be. People think it's ironic that in the bad old days before Black Lives Matter, the rate of convictions were higher than they are today. There's nothing ironic about that. Um, that reflects the fact that when you have a low threshold for investigating and prosecuting, you're going to get many more jury acquittals or grand jury refusals to indict than when you only go after the most serious cases, the cases where the evidence 
is most clear and overwhelming. And so there's no irony at all. It's, it's a trade-off. When you start investigating and prosecuting marginal cases, you're going to find many more acquittals. Remember, our system says better 10 guilty go free than one innocent be wrongly convicted. I don't think most jurors believe that, certainly not the 10 to 1 ratio, but jurors are supposed to resolve doubts in favor of acquittal rather than in favor of conviction. And in many of these cases, in the times buried in the story, you can find it, says that many of these cases are complex and nuanced and difficult. The police have an instant to react, often it's dark, and what turns out to be an unarmed man uh, may have been holding something in his hand that to a policeman 100 yards away or even 30 yards away may appear to be a weapon. And you have to look at the other side of the coin, too. What happens when police fail to shoot? I have a friend who died, a policeman. His name was Frank Burns. Uh, he was a great policeman in Harvard Square. He helped my son once when my son was selling newspapers and was beaten up by a bunch of thugs in the square. My son uh, called me and we came to the square and we found Officer Burns and he knew immediately who had done it and he got them. And he was a great, a great cop. And one day he was called to a domestic dispute. And um, domestic disputes are very dangerous. And the guy had a gun and he was holding his domestic partner um, at gunpoint. Uh, it's a long time ago. I hope I have all the facts straight, but I know the basic facts are straight. And uh, Frank could have shot uh, the guy, but because he was in close proximity to an innocent victim, he withheld his fire. And the perpetrator then shot Frank and caused serious injuries from which he eventually uh, died. And... Uh, I remember visiting him at the hospital, and he was very upset because in the exchange of gunfire, eventually he did shoot the perpetrator, and uh, both he and the perpetrator were taken to the same hospital, and the perpetrator was taken care of first medically, uh, got better attention and more attention and quicker attention than he did, and the doctors explained he was more seriously injured, and in medicine, you don't look at whether it's a policeman or a guilty perpetrator. You look at the wound. And um, sometime later, Frank died. Uh, and his death was, by him and his family and by me and others who knew him, clearly attributed to the fact that he didn't fire the first shot, that he withheld his fire. And so there's another side of that coin, too, that one has to look at. But the main point that I'm emphasizing today in this complicated, difficult discussion of race, of shootings, of uh, profiling, is that it's often much more complex than the media make it out to be, and that people who are in the business of basically trying to see everything through the lens of, of race, who reject Martin Luther King's uh, dream someday my children and grandchildren will live in a world where they will be judged by the quality of their character rather than by the color of their skin. Um, today, that's rejected on many university campuses. Today, we have programs that emphasize uh, racial differences that don't move toward a colorblind society, but try to move toward a society where race dominates and ethnicity dominates and gender dominates. And identity dominates, and the quality of the character 
is subordinate to these other more visible um, manifestations and issues. Very difficult to talk about because if you say anything that's not politically correct today, you're called a racist and you're required to go to mandatory moral training programs. You know, I can easily understand the university taking the position that we don't want overt racists uh, in our midst. We don't want people who are white supremacists or or neo-Nazis. But I don't think a university has the right to tell you how you should think about race in general. It shouldn't tell you that it's wrong to accept Martin Luther King's notion of a colorblind society, and instead you have to accept Malcolm X's notion of black power. That's not the appropriate role of a university. And you can't have moral training programs where you're required to take a loyalty oath to one side of this highly debatable issue about how we resolve race, whether or not racial quotas uh, are a good thing or a bad thing, uh, whether or not affirmative action based exclusively on race, not on class, uh, is a good thing or a, a bad thing, whether race and class uh, should be considered uh, together, uh, whether poverty, uh, other factors should be thrown into the mix when affirmative action programs are uh, implemented. These are issues that warrant discussion. People are terrified about discussing them because when they do, when they have honest discussions about issues of race and sometimes about issues of gender, but I think more today issues of race than issues of gender, you're afraid of crossing some invisible line and being accused of sexism or racism or microaggressions. Um, you know, microaggressions, macroaggressions, um, it depends on where you sit. Um, this weekend, there's going to be a demonstration against Saturday Night Live. Uh, Saturday night at 9 o'clock, a group of people are going to stand in front of NBC and protest two things that NBC did. Number one, on Saturday Night Live, they had a very bad joke it, committed the worst sin of humor. It wasn't funny. The man who told the non-joke, the bad joke about Jews getting vaccinated and non-Jews not getting vaccinated was Michael Che. He um, said, read the news, that Israel had managed to vaccinate half of its population and then sneeringly and laughingly he said, well, I'll bet you it's the Jewish half. Well, no, it wasn't the Jewish half. In fact, in all of Israel's citizens are equally eligible for vaccination, whether you're Jewish or Muslim or Christian or Russian Orthodox or uh, Buddhist or Zoroastrian. You get equal access. Um, sure, if you're not a citizen and you live in the Gaza and you're firing rockets at Israeli uh, areas uh, and you have your own health care system, maybe Israel isn't really obligated to provide, uh, take to take vaccines away from its own citizens and give them to its enemies. All right, that's a point that could be debated, but the joke wasn't funny. And there's going to be a protest. Um, I'm in favor of the protest, and I'm in favor of not banning uh, the people who made the dumb joke. Um, maybe he'll learn his lesson, and maybe he'll look in the mirror and ask himself, why does he joke about Israel and Jews so much? Is there something that maybe he ought to think hard about um, before he uh, writes any more humor of this kind. He'll think about it, and the protests will go forward. NBC also took a show off the air. 
um, an episode of Nurses, which was very stereotyped. It had a young Hasidic man who um, had needed a bone graft, and they said, you're going to get a bone graft. And um, uh, a man with a long beard, obviously a fake beard, supposed to look like a Hasid, said, yeah, but with a very stereotyped kind of accent and everything, Bill, what if it's an Arab uh, or what if it's a goy, using an invidious term, a Gentile, uh, bone? Uh, what if it's a woman? Uh, oh, my God. And then the young boy says, no, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to have it. And it was very stereotyped. And it had all the elements of uh, anti-Semitic uh, stereotyping. And NBC realized it and pulled the show off the air. So um, it's easy to be offended. Uh, one has to protect freedom of speech above all. So would I have taken it off the air? I don't know. Certainly I would have apologized or offered an explanation um, but that's NBC's decision. The government didn't make them take it off the air. As I've said before, Bill Sapphire got it right when he said once that every American has the right to complain about the trash on television except Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam has no right to complain. But, you know, Uncle NBC, he has the right to complain. Uh, Uncle, um, Uncle uh, Saturday Night Live, they have the right to tell their joke writers to try to stay away from um, stereotyping uh, of a kind that fits into a kind of history of how Jews have been stereotyped or blacks have been stereotyped or women have been stereotyped or Muslims have been stereotyped. It's very important to avoid all stereotyping. So on this show, on The Dirt Show, we're not going to stay away from talking about issues of uh, race. We're going to talk about issues of race. Uh, we're going to talk about issues of gender, issues of identity politics. And for me, it doesn't matter who the person is who made the anti-Semitic joke, whether the person was black or Jewish. Um, you know, there's an episode of Seinfeld where a guy converts to Judaism so that he can tell Jewish jokes. Um, you know, maybe you get a little bit more of a license if you're Jewish to tell a joke that stereotypes Jews. Or if you're African-American, you get a little bit more of a license to tell jokes that stereotype African-Americans, but not necessarily to a large national or international audience. You can disagree with me on this. I'd be interested in what your views are on the role of race and gender and stereotyping and humor. After all, all of humor in some ways involves stereotyping, and some of the stereotyping and humor is racial and ethnic and religious and gender. And so we have to have some breathing room for humor. Um, but the most important critique of humor and the critique I would make of Saturday Night Live is it just wasn't funny I didn't laugh maybe some people in the studio laugh because they'll laugh at anything it just wasn't funny up your game folks be funnier be more humorous we'll even be a little bit more forgiving on stereotyping if at least you're funny so on the dirt show we don't try to be funny, although I'm certainly happy to introduce humor from time to time. And we will not use racial or ethnic stereotyping. And we welcome your views on this subject, your views of how to balance free speech rights, First Amendment rights, the right to be humorous, the right to be wrong, against sensitivities. Call in, tell me what you think about the Smith case. Call in, tell me what you think about the data involving fewer successful prosecutions of 
people who have been accused of, of, of shooting uh, unarmed African-Americans, real serious problem we know we have in our society. Call in and let me know. Be the wits on The Dirt Show. Let's turn to today's questions and comments. Mr. Dershowitz, just thank you for your courage uh, in the efforts that you're taking. God bless you. Really, really appreciate what you're doing. My question is in terms of the definition, defining socialism and some of the things and actions the Democratic Party is taking as your ex great example in terms of the New York Attorney General. Um, is there, can you draw a distinction yourself in the difference between socialism and totalitarianism? Because what I'm seeing is something more akin to totalitarianism than socialism. I, I see methods of enforcement that include censorship and persecution. I see modern technology being used in terms of mass communication of special propaganda um, in terms of the, the liberal media and the biases that they have. I, I see attempts at state control of society in terms of what they're doing uh, with education and how liberal our educational institutions have become and how they're stifling religion. Um, I, I see ideologies trying to be managed by the Democratic Party in terms of, of vilifying Trump supporters. Um, I, I, I see attempts at, at state control of individuals. I, I see things that are really defining more totalitarianism versus socialism. And I'm, I'm wondering what your opinion is on that. Thank you. It's a very good and complex question. Of course, socialism at its core is merely an economic system whereby um, the government plays a larger role in controlling the means of production. We have socialist countries in the world today that are anything but totalitarian. Most of them are mixed socialist free market countries, the Scandinavian countries. Uh, Israel started as a socialist country when uh, 1948, when Ben-Gurion was the prime minister, it was a socialist country, and it uh, had kibbutzim, and uh, uh, a lot of the elements of socialism were there, but it was a fully-blown uh, democracy. There's no question that when you give the government the power to regulate the economy, the risks of moving from the economy to private areas of life increase. We've seen totalitarianism both from the left and the right at the same time, obviously, uh, communism under Stalin was uh, socialism taken to its illogical extreme Bolshevism and uh, totalitarianism. On the other hand, Mussolini um, was uh, a capitalist and uh, uh, Hitler, although the party was called the National Socialist Party, um, the only thing socialist about it was that the government controlled many of the means of production. But it was a mixture. It didn't fit neatly into any definition of socialism. So I think we have to separate out, um, say, for example, the New Deal, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal, which had elements of socialism, um, social security, um, minimum wage, government regulation of certain industries, but maintained full and robust uh, freedom of speech and, and democracy. 
So there is a, an enormous difference between socialism on the one hand and totalitarianism on the other hand. And I think sometimes people on the right throw around the term socialism and liberalism much too casually. A liberal is anything but a socialist. Uh, a liberal is somebody who believes in freedom and liberty and uh, civil liberties and open-mindedness. Um, so let's be careful with our, our use of terms. Hello, Professor. My name is Lance. In light of the attorneys who defended President Trump and the 140 uh, supposedly learned scholars who talked about how Mm-hmm. You know, these people should be basically deplatformed. I mean, right. that's what they were saying. They right. were saying that 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 the Constitution is over. Um, I'm curious to just like to hear you expand, expound on your fears of where this is going. It looks like the majority of your um, uh, your profession is there. And you you guys are now outliers in just the men in the wilderness now, where you used to be kind of a mainstream guy, Alan. You were one of the leading attorneys in, in, in the world. And now you've made been made to look like an, an outlier. Um, just like to hear you talk about that one. Anyway, thank you. That's a great question. I am an outlier. Jonathan Turley, when he testified in front of Congress the other day, called about him, described himself as a relic. Um, you know, we are constitutionalists. We believe in the First Amendment. Um, We believe in due process. Uh, We believe in equal protection of the laws. We believe in all of the elements of the Constitution of Civil Liberties and many, including those 144 supposed scholars who said that even to raise a First Amendment issue would be to engage in legally frivolous and unscholarly and irresponsible behavior. We're trying to suppress free speech, trying to suppress zealous advocacy. I'm very comfortable as an outlier. I'm right. They're wrong. Um, I challenge them to debate on the show. I would accept an invitation to debate them in any context. Any one of those who signed that 144 um, uh, person uh, letter that basically, uh, whether it was intended to or the effect was to try to intimidate lawyers from not raising serious arguments. Imagine in the South in the 1950s, if a group of hundreds of lawyers said, if you dare, if you dare raise the argument that school segregation is unconstitutional, if you dare raise that argument, you will be raising a legally frivolous argument and should be disbarred. I can imagine lawyers in the Deep South in those days trying to intimidate civil rights lawyers. Of course, the 144 scholars would have been on the other side of that issue as they will be if there's ever an attempt to impeach a Democratic president for a speech similar to the one that uh, President Trump made on January 6th. They would be on the exact opposite side, most of them. They would say, of course, it's protected by the Constitution. He talked about peaceful and patriotic. Have your voices heard. Uh, I just can't understand how these folks can call themselves scholars and, and, and constitutionalists when they simply failed to pass the shoe on the other foot test and and clearly were applying a partisan definition of what is and is not free speech. Hi, Professor Dershowitz. This is Barbara from New Jersey. I loved your show with Mr. Heim and Mr. Vanderveen. I consider them true American patriots. I didn't know that 
Mr. Heim went to Rutgers Law. My son is actually awaiting a response to see if he was accepted to Rutgers Law. And now I'm very concerned because my son is a conservative and um, I don't believe he's going to fit in there. So I was just wondering if you think that is um, Mr. Vanderveen mentioned that students should take note of who signed that letter and maybe avoid those schools. And I just wanted to know your point of view on that. Thank you. Well, I hope your son gets into whichever law schools he applies to. Rutgers has a reputation for being um, very much on the left. I'm sure it does have some conservative professors. And if your son has courage, he's going to have to stand up to the group think. But that would be true of many, many universities today. Uh, Yale Law School, where I went to a law school in which when I was there, I had a range of professors. Um, Alex Bickel was a brilliant constitutional professor, somewhat conservative, though very much a civil libertarian. We had Professor Emerson, who was very much on the left. The students joked with him. They used to call him, his name was Thomas Emerson. They used to call him Tommy the Commie. He wasn't a communist, obviously, but he was to the left. But we prided ourselves at Yale at having a very wide diversity of points of view, and no student was ever punished or or, or ridiculed for a point of view, whereas these letters by, by these professors uh, basically said, if you believe that there's a First Amendment right of President Trump to have made that speech, you are irresponsible. You have poor judgment. You're not a scholar. You're not a jurist. Um, that's very dangerous for professors to take that view of students who differ from them. But... Um, you know, there are a few schools that are well known for having a more conservative bent. Uh, Mason, uh, which is now, I guess, the Scalia School of Law, appropriately named, would have a more conservative bent. Probably the University of Virginia would have a more conservative bent. Um, schools like Harvard and Yale, a considerably more liberal bent. Likewise, NYU, probably Columbia. Uh, ask around, but uh, have your son choose the best law school, the one that he's most comfortable in, and... Have him stand up for his rights. Don't let any of the teachers or students push him around. Hello, Professor Dershowitz. Uh, I'm enjoying listening to your show. I think you are one uh, prominent voice in support of American Constitution, in support of truly American liberalism and the way of life, among many other voices preaching opposite the opposite. I am an immigrant from the former Soviet Union. I live in the United States for many, many years. And what amazes me right now is the mere fact that many young people and not so young people do not understand and do not appreciate the value of American Constitution and Bill of Rights. Uh, I think what's important is to remember that those documents are not just legal documents. They are not just law of the land. They are fabric. They are foundation of the fabric of uh, American society. And that's what is being lost right now. And that's, that's, that's why I have a huge concern. Well, I appreciate your call. As you probably know, I spent a lot of time in the former Soviet Union defending dissidents and helping people to get out of the country. Um, I was one of the leaders of the legal campaign on behalf of people who had been sentenced to death in prison for dissident activities, for refusing activities. And, you know, it really takes having lived in the former Soviet Union maybe to appreciate liberty and to appreciate freedom of speech. I'll never forget there was a young man, his name was Yuli Wexler, 
that I helped to get out of the Soviet Union, brought to the United States, and he had nowhere to live, and he moved into my house and helped me take care of my children when I was a single father. And when he first came to the United States, we took a walk from my house to Harvard Square, and I brought him to a bookstore, and he was shocked that you could actually buy a book in the United States without the government knowing which book you bought. Uh, in the Soviet Union, if you bought a book, the government would have a record of what book you bought. So if you bought a book that was in any way critical, if you could even find one in a bookstore, and of course in the United States you could find books in bookstores that are critical of every aspect of America. And it took somebody from the Soviet Union like him to make me appreciate how free we are and we can go to a bookstore, buy a book, pay cash, not use a credit card, and nobody in the world will ever know that we bought this book and, and, and read it. Uh, I doubt you can do that in Hong Kong today. I doubt you can do that in Cuba today. And um, if you don't uh, appreciate uh, American liberty and American freedom, just spend some time in a really repressive regime, and maybe you'll come back and appreciate it. Professor Dershowitz, avid fan, frequent listener, and a subscriber. I paid my tuition, and I urge others to do likewise. On the subject of personhood, who or what authority has the power to establish personhood, the personhood of children in utero before their birthdays? Scotus wrote, and I quote, if this suggestion of personhood is established, the appellant's case, of course, collapses, for the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed specifically by the amendment. Since SCOTUS didn't do that in 73, who today, today's SCOTUS, Congress, the president, a religious figure, uh, me, you, who can definitively declare that children are endowed with personhood, which will protect them under the 14th Amendment from deprivation of life, liberty, and property without due process. How would that come about? Well, I think it would have to be a legislative determination. There's certainly nothing in the Constitution about it. The framers of the Constitution did not require, did not regard fetuses as persons. Um, if they did, they would have had them count in the census, uh, they would have made it murder to uh, abort a fetus or to destroy a fetus. None of that is true under the common law. Um, for you to be convicted of killing a person, you have to be convicted of killing a person who has been born. Uh, the legislature could change that, but the framers certainly did not have in mind personhood for fetuses. I mean, if you start going down that uh, line, how early in life does the fetus become a person? Uh, immediately upon the, the zygote connecting, immediately upon intercourse occurring, when the sperm and the egg merge, does, is it a person then? Um, is the sperm a potential person? Is the egg a potential person? Um, does it require a few months to pass? These are all going to be matters of degree. One can easily argue that the Supreme Court should not be involved in such complicated issues that involve religion, philosophy, biology, etc. It should be the legislature, but, but surely the Constitution does not, when it talks about, or the Declaration of Independence, when it talks about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, 
um, doesn't include the life of a fetus explicitly. Uh, and, and if you look at the laws that existed at the time of the framing, uh, the framers would be shocked to hear that a fetus was a person, and then it would raise all those questions I've just raised. When does personhood begin, uh, et cetera? And, and there's an enormous difference. Um, I've written about this extensively. There's a big difference between a woman who has chosen to have an abortion, whether or not that fetus has personhood, or a woman who says, no, I want to bring this child to birth, and then somebody deliberately kicks her in the belly, deprives her of the ability and deprives the child who was about to be born of the ability to live. I can imagine a rational law treating those situations quite differently. Um, a woman uh, surely has the right to smoke uh, under the law today, a right to drink and a right to use prescribed pharmaceutical drugs. But if she's pregnant, uh, maybe she doesn't have that right. Uh, maybe the fetus does have, if it's going to be born, the right to be born healthy. These are such complex issues that are better addressed, I think, by legislatures than they are by courts. Hello, Professor Dershowitz. Uh, I, my name is Chris. I'm from Stockholm. Uh, grew up in New York. I want to ask a, a quick question regarding the student loan forgiveness proposals and the constitutionality of it. Uh, and if it doesn't actually create two classes of citizens and that uh, it is asking for a forgiveness of debt from a party that willingly entered into a contract with the institution or the government that they've received their loan from. Uh, and it, by giving them a uh, forgiveness of this debt, it, doesn't that create two classes? And how is that constitutional that you could also say that somebody can back out of the contract that they made? Uh, that was my question. Well, the Constitution does provide, of course, for the validity of contracts. It's in the Constitution itself. And I can imagine if um, somebody owes money to a university and the legislature forgave all those debts that the university could probably bring a lawsuit. Whether or not somebody whose debt wasn't forgiven would have standing to do that, I don't know. I'm not myself in favor of, of universally canceling all debt. I don't want to have money go to very, very wealthy people, people who have benefited from their college education, who have made a fortune of money and now want their debt forgiven. Um, look, I was very lucky. I went to a free college. I made money off my college. I won a New York State scholarship, a competitive scholarship. And therefore, I was paid $1,400 to go to college. Um, it covered everything. Um, but tuition was zero at Brooklyn College, and I got a phenomenal education. So I'm a little spoiled. I, I'd love to see free education at least for poor people. I couldn't have afforded to pay tuition in college, and many of my classmates at Brooklyn College or City College in New York could not have gone to college if they charged tuition, certainly if they charged Harvard-type uh, tuition. So free education was very important. I'd like to see more free education, but I'm in favor of a means test. Um, I don't think rich people should benefit from having their 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 debt canceled. Um, and... Uh, uh, you're right, it does create two classes of citizens. I don't think it raises a constitutional question for others. I don't think they have standing. The government has the right to treat citizens differently uh, if they think they have a rational basis for 
uh, doing so. But I think the government should look hard uh, before it creates a program in which all college debts are canceled rather than selectively canceling debt in order to encourage uh, graduates to go into uh, areas of business and life that benefit the society and not just making more and more and more money. These are hard questions, and they're the kinds of questions that for years I would welcome discussions in law school. Today it's very hard to have these discussions. Uh, you're accused of classism. You're accused of thisism, thatism, the otherism. But on The Der Show, we're always going to have these kinds of discussions. And the questions I got today, the questions, the comments I get repeatedly are so intelligent, so thoughtful, whether I agree with them or disagree with them, that's the nature of debate in America. So let's continue the debate on future Der Shows. An important part of the Der Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.